Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow in the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. Sharon, it's great to be back together. Oh, Anna Greta, I'm so pleased to be back. As you know, and as some of our listeners might know, I lost my voice last week. I came down with laryngitis, which is a bit of a problem for podcasting. So I was out of action and I started to panic at one point when it took days for my voice to come back thinking, I'll never be able to speak again. And I could imagine myself sitting next to you in the studio, sadly gesticulating as you ask the questions, but but happily my voice is back. Fantastic. I was so disappointed to miss last week's conversation, but boy, you did a brilliant job and what a great conversation it was with Yasmin Poole and and Sonia Palameri. A privilege and a pleasure to speak with those two. It was just a wonderful discussion with Yasmin Poole and Sonia Palmieri. Another conversation where we feel that injection of hope as we see the political landscape in Australia evolve, particularly after the election. But the conversation with them was was inspirational for, again, offering us a roadmap uh, for how we will see politics improve, I think, in, in the months and in the years ahead. Yeah, I I must say I couldn't help smile at times when I was listening to it because there was that sense of hope. And I I think it was Sonia that made the point that we we kind of don't all realise just how how difficult it has been over Mm. the past several years um, and how there is now this sense of optimism. And, of course, Sonia has been right at the heart of making recommendations that will bring about real change. And to think that now there is an opportunity for that to happen, I, I think is very, very exciting. And hearing her talk some of that through was was fantastic. I was really interested to hear what Yasmin was saying about intersectionality. And mm. I think, you know, this is such an important issue. And, you know, that's a, co- a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw back in with the late 1980s and has always been really central since that point to feminist theorising 
It's fantastic to see that concept now being taken up and talked about generally to start to influence the way we think about policy and the way we keep gender at the centre, but also think about those other characteristics that shape people's lives and are so important when we're really thinking about inclusiveness and diversity. Yeah, a very valuable framework. And look, after we recorded, I did say to Yasmin that we're going to follow her work as she heads to Oxford to do further research in in that framework and in the concepts around it, that, that we very much hope to follow her with interest. And I'm sure that, um, that we'll have her back on the pod uh, in the next couple of years uh, to again go through some of those ideas. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. I think, I'd, I'd also say to our listeners, you know, for people who are not familiar with the concept, Google Kimberly Crenshaw TED Talk. Yep. And it is one of the most powerful talks I have ever seen um, on the TED series. And it really gives an insight into why intersectionality matters. And yeah, it will be great to, to follow where Yasmin takes this. So I remember the distress that I felt after the Women's March and the anger and distress here in Canberra and across the country last year. And I remember unpacking that event and the, the, those issues with um, Kim Rubenstein on the pod last year. And I felt like last week's episode, this discussion with Sonia and Yasmin, was part of a resolution where we can actually really see meaningful change uh, beginning to come forward, uh, particularly for that political landscape in Australia. Yeah, it feels like we're on the cusp of something very different and very positive. But we should move on to today's pod. As as our listeners know, um, Policy Forum Pod is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. And here at Crawford, we offer a range of degree programs and short courses from environmental management, climate change, to national security and public policy. Um, and, of course, courses on poverty and poverty reduction. <laughs> to find out more, visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Now, on today's episode, we have the next conversation in, in what is part of our post-election analysis of some of the issues that were really critical during the recent campaign in Australia and are now key to the policy challenges that the new Australian government is facing. Anna Greta, would you like to share what we'll be talking about on this episode? I'm so looking forward to today's discussion. Food, energy and water are all valuable resources that we need to survive, but they act in delicate balance with one another. Current global events threaten that balance and the very security of these core resources. The war in Ukraine, inflation, COVID-19 and climate change are fueling what some experts are calling a triple threat, food, energy and water insecurity. Food prices are almost 30% higher than they were at the same time last year, and we've seen several fast food outlets replace lettuce with cabbage, which is becoming a symbol for the increasing costs of living here in Australia. Food prices are spiking around the world, though, in a global food crisis, with the United Nations warning that conflict, combined with the effects of climate change and the pandemic, threatened to tip tens of millions of people over the edge into food insecurity, followed by malnutrition, mass hunger and famine. In Australia, it's hard to escape the headlines of the Australian energy crisis. With a lack of reserve and a reliance on coal-fired power stations, energy prices are on the rise, and in some instances, blackouts are already occurring and results in price increases in our energy market. 
Topping off this nasty trifecta is the global effort to prevent a global water crisis. With fear of conflict and unrest arising if adequate water security, including sanitation, clean drinking water, and water for agricultural purposes cannot be managed. So with this in mind, what can be done to ensure our food, water, and energy security? How can we reduce poverty and inequality in relationship to food, energy, and water? And what do lessons from our region tell us about the way forward? To help us unpack this, we're joined by one of our remarkable ANU colleagues. Would you like to introduce our guest, Sharon? I would love to, Anna Greta. And gosh, we've been talking about hope and optimism, um, which I think we're all feeling in Australia at the moment in some ways, but that is a less than hopeful and optimistic set of challenges that you've just mapped. And there is no one better than Quentin Grafton to help us to think through not just those challenges, but ways forward. Quentin Grafton is a dear colleague here at Crawford. He is Professor of Economics. He is also an Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow. He is the convener of the Water Justice Hub and director of the Centre for Water Economics, Environment and Policy here at the Crawford School. In 2010, Quentin was appointed as the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance, and from 2013 to 2014, he served as the Executive Director at the Australian National Institute of Public Policy. Quentin currently serves as the Director of the Food, Energy, Environment and Water Network and in exciting and breaking news, he has just been appointed as Lead Expert and Commissioner of the Global Commission on the Economics of Water, where he'll be preparing a report for the UN Water Conference, which is to be held in March 2023 in New York. We had the great pleasure of speaking to Quentin in April last year on the bushfires in Australia and on inequality and planning for the future. And it seems an appropriate time to first of all congratulate Quentin on his new appointment and Quentin to say welcome back to the pod. Oh, it's a real pleasure to return and to, to talk to both of you. So a lot has happened since um, since last time we spoke, Quentin, in, in including a change of government. So, Quentin, today we we wanted to talk to you about a crisis that Australia is facing. And, of course, there is the pandemic, which is an ongoing challenge. But energy, food and water are all precious and valuable sources or resources that we need in order to live. Um, And across each of those, we are facing real challenges at the moment. Research from the Global Water Forum explores climate adaptation in response to food, to water and to energy security, with findings from the latest IPCC report highlighting how climate change is shaping our environmental futures. Can you talk us through how climate change is impacting on our relationships to food and to water and to energy? Yes, I I can, Sharon. So the the term people use is climate change as a multiplier. And so when it comes to food, energy and water, it multiplies the risks. So with climate change, we expect changes in precipitation. And of course, most people are familiar with the changes in uh, surface temperatures. So to give you a sense, in Australia, uh, we've had an increase 
since two, uh, since 1910 of about uh, 1.47 degrees centigrade. So when people talk about 1.5 degrees centigrade warming, in fact, it's 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 essentially already happened in Australia relative to to when we started uh, doing the rec- records back in 1910. So what that means is it has implications in terms of uh, precipitation. So parts of Australia are. I, getting drier and much drier, for example, in southwestern Australia, and some parts are are drying out and other parts are are increasing in precipitation. So it's a a mixed bag because we're a big continent. And so you put all that together with more extreme events, cyclonic activity, for example, long droughts, then you have a whole series of issues associated with the environment, associated with communities in terms of water quality, in terms of accessibility water, and of course, in terms of food production. And that's the Australian story when it comes to climate change in terms of the energy space. Uh, We also need to add that layer on top. So uh, when there's uh, less precipitation, it has an impact on hydroelectric generation. And of course, uh, those extreme events can also put greater demands, particularly in 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 Australia's case, in summer months, uh, extreme demands in terms of energy generation. And that has a whole set of implications in terms of an energy crisis or an energy emergency, however term you want to use. So, so you've got the energy space, and then in the energy space, uh, um, not just in Australia but on a global scale, um, uh, gas, for example, is is used to produce fertilizer, and that's having implications in food in terms of um, providing uh, food supplies and increasing the cost of food. So, on top of the the COVID pandemic, uh, on top of the Ukrainian uh, uh, invasion by Russia. Uh, And on top of all of those issues, we have this ongoing set of issues. So yeah, multiple risks in multiple locations over over time that we have to deal with, not only in Australia, but at a global scale. So Quentin, I, I do want to pick up on issues around the energy crisis, which are very topical at the moment. But but before we go to that, what what impacts are we seeing in terms of of food security and water security, are they looming crises in Australia as we see those impacts of climate change that you've just, that you've just outlined? Well, I think in the you know, water emergency, a water crisis already exists in Australia. It may not seem like it to people who've been flooded out a couple of times uh, in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland in the last few months uh, because of the La Nina events. But, but that's what's going on. We have an ongoing crisis. So, you know, we're not talking ancient history here. There were communities that ran out of water in 2019. Um, there are communities right now in Australia that don't have access to drinking water that meets Australian drinking water guidelines. We have a whole set of issues around the ecology, ecosystem services, of a number of our key uh, locations in Australia, the Murray-Darling Basin being, being one of them, but not the only one. So we've got all of those issues and there are ongoing now threats to 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 actually transport some of the irrigation industry from the Murray-Darling Basin and other locations in southern Australia up to northern Australia, northern territory and to western Australia and uh, also possibly Queensland as well with a whole series of infrastructure and freebies for those people who will be able to get that water essentially for free 
in the context that there's no actual charge, for example, in the Northern Territory for what a bit that's being extracted and uh, that has been recently provided in terms of forms of licenses. So, I mean, there's a, the, the, so you, 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 you start one issue and then it cascades. So, so that's, that's the, that's the issue. Food security. Uh, is not really a fundamental issue or food insecurity for most Australians. We more certainly produce more than enough food for ourselves and we export a lot of food. Obviously, we do need to import food. The issue is really um, not so much the supply, it's really the accessibility and certainly for uh, low-income and marginalised Australians uh, because, of course, higher food prices uh, affect those people on low incomes much, much more than people on, on, on high incomes. And uh, you know, there's the price of wheat, for example, has uh, is, is more than doubled in the recent past. Uh, that is an imp- has an implication for 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 uh, bread, for example, um, but not only for Australians, but that's a that's a global price. So it has implications, particularly for people who rely a lot on on wheat as a as a, a main form of calorie intake. So yeah, though that's a food insecurity, particularly at a global level, and water insecurity is absolutely an ongoing problem uh, in Australia and indeed globally as well because there are key areas of the world, uh, probably about a dozen of world's countries produce most of the world's food. You know, and so China, India, United States, Canada, Australia, I mean, and other countries produce much of the world's food. Now, quite a number of those countries are highly dependent on either groundwater, which is uh, declining, uh, so there's declining availability there, or they're dependent uh, on irrigation and irrigation based on both groundwater and surface water. And so there's a whole series of issues as we expand food supply, how that's going to uh, happen uh, when we have these uh, w- limits in terms of water availability in a whole series of countries, including including Australia. Hearing you talking, those those interconnections are, are just so powerful. And thinking, you know, you you made the point, Quentin, around food accessibility and affordability for people on low incomes as, crisis, as as prices increase. And I'm thinking too of what we see in some parts of Australia that's often referred to as food deserts, where for you know essentially political and infrastructure reasons, people don't have access to to fresh food often or to the food they need. And so we have you know these these this complexity of factors you know coming into play. But I also wanted to ask you about the energy crisis. And of course, we've seen recently, you know, the headlines centering on Australia's energy crisis. Um, And I think for many of us, that looks very confusing. What does our energy system look like? And could you talk us through what it is that's driving the current energy crisis that we're hearing so much about? Yeah, so I think Paul Keating said uh, in relation to the economy, this is the recession we had to have. Uh, I can I can just borrow from his terms and, and change it around and say this is the energy crisis we didn't need to have. Uh, and so it's a combination of factors, some some within our control that could have been mitigated if we had the right set of energy policies over the last few years, and some beyond our control. So one of the things that's beyond our control is the price of gas. So that's an international price. There are long-term contracts, but spot price. So the price of gas is very high at the moment for a number of reasons, including uh, the war in, in Ukraine. And so that increases the price of gas, you increase the price of gas, then uh, you've got a whole set of issues about uh, the implications for um, 
particularly industry, but 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 also uh, households in terms of affordability. So there's a crisis of affordability. There's also a crisis of supply. So at the moment in on Australia, so we're in the middle of winter right now, in, in well, not quite the middle, but very close to, to the middle of winter, and and we're having some some rather cold temperatures uh, for this month. And so what that means is demand is up, certainly household demand is up. And so uh, you've got uh, uh, a limited supply simply because there are some um, capacity constraints associated with um, uh, maintenance, operations and maintenance with some of the, some of the plants. Uh, and of course, um, there is a limited infrastructure as well to be able to ship around the energy, namely gas, for example. Those pipelines uh, heading down into southeastern Australia, they're, they're essentially full. So, um, <laughs> if, you know, even if, even if we have the gas, we can't provide it to, to the households who need it because, anymore, uh, because we just don't have the infrastructure. So, so a number of factors, we didn't make the necessary investments, didn't have the leadership to make that investment from the, from a government perspective. We have high prices, which is, of course, an issue for affordability, particularly for lower income households. We've got issues in terms of timing about how uh, decisions were made in terms of the sorts of things that are going on in, in energy plants at the moment. And of course, um, you know, we have the potential to, to produce a lot more energy, a lot more energy uh, from renewables. But there was a, a series of uh, poorly designed policies or, or no design at all um, over the last few years, which has contributed to this, uh, what I would call an energy crisis. So, so um no, you know, the, I suppose there's no point looking at the past uh, and pointing fingers. There's lots of <laughs> lots of blame to be passed around to a number of a number of individuals and and organisations, I suppose. But the point is, where do we go from here? And um, well, in the immediate to short term, there's not much we can do. Um, the uh, we have a national energy market. They've uh, stopped the, the the spot market, which is it works as a spot market to supply and demand to balance. Uh, they now got a fixed price at the moment. Um, they're redirecting some of the uh, supply <laughs> and demand. Um, so there's a there's a lot of things that that. Uh, operational space we're trying to deal with us to avoid blackouts uh, tonight and 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 in the days and weeks to come. So that's uh, that's a problem we'll have to 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 work through. But it's much more important, I think, for everybody to understand that these problems can be fixed. They're not they're not not fixable. So the gas issue in particular, we need infrastructure. If that's the gas that's going to be available, and and that gas is going to be part of of the um, of the energy system we have in Australia for some years to come, then then we need to make sure it's it's available where it needs it need the demand is. Uh, we need to make sure we, we're doing the right thing when it comes to uh, capacity. To make sure that those operators uh, get paid for their capacity, so they're available uh, in situations like we're experiencing this week. Uh, we need to make sure we've got the right investments. A much much more investment in terms of renewables. We need to make investments in the structure in terms of how. They that energy gets around the system. We need to bring in other distributed forms of uh, energy storage, such as uh, cars that have large, you know, 160 kilowatt batteries that allow households to, to, to become more or less independent for, for a good part of their energy needs. I mean, those are the sorts of things we've got to do. Uh, we've got to put in the necessary investments in, in terms of EV 
uh, electric vehicles. I mean, there's a there's lots of things that we can, and some of them have been promised by the the, the recently elected government, uh, but they will take time. They they're not instantly can't instantly happen. You can't instantly spend billions of dollars in infrastructure. It takes time. But you know, one, two, three, five years uh, as we make progress, we we should look behind us and say, oh, 2022, that was the year we had the energy crisis and think that we've moved out of that through sensible decisions, government-led and market decisions that allow us to to not get into the situation again. And again, I, I, I don't want to stress the past, but there are series of very poor decisions made over the last few years that have contributed to this crisis. And it didn't need to happen. It didn't have to be this way, but sadly, it, it is this way. And that's the consequence of uh, poor decision-making. Quentin, you've just done an amazing job of mapping for us part of the problems with our long-term reliance across Australia on on fossil fuel and coal and gas particularly. Um, in the contrast to that, here within the ACT, we've had this 100% renewable energy target that was achieved in 2020, and it's thought that we are likely to be somewhat protected from the surging power prices because of that investment in a renewable energy strategy. What do you think the ACT government has done right, and, and what can the rest of Australia learn from that Canberra example? Well, they thought ahead. So, it, as again, it's not rocket science, but I give my you know, take, give my compliments to the ACT government for decisions that were made some years ago. But yes, it, you've got to think ahead. You have to say, well, you know what what investments do we need if we want to meet this target that's 100% renewable, or it's the 2030 targets or the 2050 targets from a climate change perspective. But there need to be targets there on an energy perspective uh, to to deliver the climate change targets. So you have to have a strategy, and then you say, well, what's the the cost-effective and reliable way of delivering that. In the ACT government, they decided that they would uh, offer these contracts so private sector would come in, they would build the renewables, uh, you know, so we have these solar farms, there's more than one, and then uh, they would be uh, priced to, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to encourage to provide that supply and contracts were signed. So, so when, the, when the price of energy is high, which it has been in the, in, in the NAM, um, but in the national energy market, then, then the, uh, the beneficiaries are the consumers in the ACT. Um, and so uh, that's, that's how the system was set up. So what does that mean for other jurisdictions in Australia or other places in the world? Well, you need to, to, to have that, I think, uh, public-private sector partnership. I mean, private sector is typically going to be better at, uh, you know, in terms of the the uh, infrastructure developments, direct infrastructure developments. But but uh, you know, the government is absolutely needed there to make sure we've got the um, the necessary investments and encouragement for that uh, that infrastructure. And so, um, have a plan, um, you know, actually make it happen, and, and do so uh, in, in advance. So, you know, we can do a lot in the next, you know, next two to three years. Um, uh, not only in the solar farms, but in terms of uh, wind power and generation, offshore wind in particular is, is, a, is a big, big potential for Australia. So there's there's a number of options available to us, and um, we just need to, to 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 do it. And I have to say, at, at a state level, that things have been done much better than than at a <laughs> than at a federal level. Um, uh, you know, as the ACT is is one example. 
Mm. Quentin, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've really noticed a shift on the podcast from discussing the problems to really focusing now on what sort of solutions are available to us. It, it's such a such a, a significant change in in the hope that we can offer listeners and, and the way in which we might see things actually improve. Um, you've done a superb job of mapping out the problems and we will take a quick break here and we'll be back in just one moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Quentin Grafton and we're talking about water, food and energy security, particularly in Australia. Quentin, just before the break, you were talking about the way that the ACT uh, was able to look ahead um, in relation to energy security um, and to achieve uh, 100% renewable energy um, a couple of years ago, putting the Territory in a, a much stronger position. I, I wanted to shift now to, to water, which we've already talked about, and we've already talked about the ongoing crisis Australia faces in relation to water. Um, and as you've said, even though it's felt like we've had an abundance of water during the recent devastating floods, we are a very low rainfall continent. So, Quentin, I'd, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on looking ahead, what we need to be doing to think about the kinds of solutions we need around water security in this country, you know, and perhaps channeling what the ACT government's done in terms of looking ahead on, on energy security. What do we need to be doing nationally um, to make ourselves more water secure? Well, I, I think we've got to have a mature debate about what we want in terms of outcomes in relation to water quantity and water quality. And once we have that debate, then we start, start to deliver it, you know, have a strategy to deliver it. Now, there will be uh, uh, different ways of thinking about it, and some people will highlight the importance of growing food, which it clearly is very important. But others will highlight the issues associated with the environment, ecosystem services, if there's not enough water in repairing environments. And others will highlight communities, accessibility issues. So all of these matters are important. So we have to make it clear to ourselves uh, and, and at, a, and a, at a state and federal level what the, what the goals are. And I, and I would argue, I mean, obviously, it's not for me to say, it's, it's, for, it's for us to do it in a collective dialogue, but I would argue that we need to protect um, the existing repairing environments. They have been in decline and have been in decline uh, in a number of 
ways, whether it's water birds or whether it's fish or, or whether it's uh, vegetation, uh, in all sorts of ways, it's damaging not only environmental sites, uh, it's environment damaging cultural sites. It's, it's shocking that, that uh, you know, communities um, – in the western New South Wales, you know, next to one of our largest rivers, you know, which is run ran, ran dry, you know, couldn't even have uh, drinking water, you know, <laughs> that it had to be provided through through uh, through uh, volunteers at least initially in terms of providing drinking water to, to 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 those communities. That's that's shocking. You know, this is just you know three years ago in a country as as wealthy uh, as Australia. So so that's an outcome we don't want. I mean, if it happened in, in Sydney, there'd have been riots. I mean, <laughs> you know, there wouldn't be any government in, in the New South Wales at that. So so this is the point. The point is we have to make sure everybody. It's water for all. That's every Australian, every resident of Australia is going to be catered for. So that to me, to me is an absolute must as an outcome, including in regional and remote remote communities. Second thing is we need to make sure we don't have any continu- uh, con- the continuing decline uh, in our ecosystem services. It's 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 devastating already in a number of locations. We've got to stop that. So we've got to have that as a, as a key outcome. And then there's a whole set of other issues around. Yes, we need to make sure we we can produce the the food that we need. So so if you put it into you know three three or four or five or whatever key outcomes, then that's what we need to write up and put in big bright letters. That's what we want, and then we deliver it. So if it's re- regional and remote communities in terms of water quality, we've got to make sure that everybody's got you know, appropriate water, either groundwater or surface water that's properly treated. That's got to be a must, and that's going to require an investment. If it's about the ecosystem services and our rivers and our streams, we've got to make sure that we don't extract too much, okay? And that's certainly been happening. So in recent work that I've been doing with co-authors, we've looked at the last uh, 20 years on the uh, the Darling River, so the Barker uh, is the the Barkingy term for it, the Barker Darling, or the Lower Darling, and uh, we've looked and we found that uh, in terms of reduced stream flows over the past 20 years, about uh, uh, about a third of that is due to climate change, as in reduced precipitation, but uh, half to two thirds is due to uh, higher extractions. So, so, so that tells us that's not something that we should be doing. Uh, why? Because uh, people can recall the 2019 fish kills in Menindee Lakes. Uh, those the that was the outcomes of extracting too much water. So we need to get that right, and so we need to get the uh, put put those outcomes, make it clear what they are, and then deliver it with you know clear strategies, uh, you know cause and effect, uh, and that's what we need to do. Um, it's uh, it sounds easy, but it's it's been a very very hard thing to do in Australia. Why? Because the people who have water, the people who have water rights, which primarily those in the irrigation sector, are not prepared to to pass that on. Of course, without compensation, and there was a scheme to compensate uh, through the market purchase of water entitlements. Uh, but that uh, scheme ended um, a few years ago with the government, federal government, uh, actually legislating uh, to, to, to stop that, putting a cap on it. So, so we need to sort of take take a careful look, do the the policies that have worked in the past, make sure that they are implemented, and avoid the the myths. Uh, one of the myths is that we can just bull dams around Australia and it'll fix our problems. That's not the case. It's not just me saying this. 
some very qualified hydrologists are saying this, and I've been saying it for a long period of time. So, so just be sensible, avoid people who influence uh, decision making, and particularly in the last few years, uh, that decision making that uh, helps particular interests, but not the public interest, and and uh, we can we can de- deliver uh, a, a much better water security and water for all in Australia. It's it's perfectly feasible, and in a relatively short period of time in the next few years. But if we don't do the policies, if we don't do the strategic thinking, we don't have the outcomes in front and center in our mind. We don't do the right policies, then we're going to continue to have the bad outcomes that we've had, uh, and in fact they'll they will get worse. Quentin, I I think that phrase you used of water for all is actually incredibly powerful. One of the things that we have seen in Australia over many years now is a shift away from the idea that everyone has an entitlement uh, to basic services, to a, a decent standard of living. I think these are principles that were once very deeply held in this country that we have moved away from. So I think those three words, water for all, are really incredibly important and, and incredibly powerful. But, but I wanted to just ask you a, a little more about what we can learn from the the failures of the, the past and how we can look forward. And of course, the, the Murray-Darling Basin, you've, we've referred to some of those you know, really catastrophic issues um, that we've, we've seen in recent years um, and the authority that was, was assigned to manage it have, have been um, the subject of much debate in this country over, over recent years. What can we learn from all of that um, as we move forward? And, and what do you think our starting point has to be? We are now in a situation where, where we have a new government, we're already starting to see a very different style towards politics from the new federal government. What do you think needs to be the starting point to learn from the past, but to start to to reset and to look towards the future? What are the, the really critical things that need to happen quickly? Well, I, the, what I the way I would respond is to simply say you've you've got to be a truth teller. We have to we have to know what's going on. So for too many years in the water space, people have pretended that they had a solution when they didn't, ignored evidence, evidence that was in published literature that was widely available, just pretended it didn't exist, and then only listened to a relatively small coterie of individuals uh, who had uh, particular interests that not not necessarily the public interest. So that that's that's the explanation. The the way forward, I think, is 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 almost sounds a bit peculiar because you've asked me a question about water or food, energy, and water, but I, it does begin with truth. So we have to have integrity in terms of our political and public policy system. If we don't have integrity, then what that means is those people with uh, undue influence because they're donors or um, whatever they, it is that they they've got as a particular benefit, uh, those sorts of individuals. Uh, will uh, 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 proliferate and 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 look for decisions that favor themselves. So what integrity does and what truth telling does, and that's why we need to have a uh, you know a, a very much a robust uh, integrity uh, commission in, in Australia at a federal level. Of course, it does exist at a, a sub federal level. Is that it allows 
for us, as in the public, the people of Australia, to, to have those checks and balances. So if, if, a, if a, it's a politician or senior public servant or an advisor makes a decision that's clearly contrary, in the, contrary to the public interest, then they can be called up to the Integrity Commission and said, why did you make this? decision. And if they start to tell lies, uh, you know, commit perjury, then you know, they'll end up uh, uh, in jail. You know? so, so there are clear incentives, therefore, for those people in those positions that make those decisions, that they take those decisions seriously based on merit and, on the public, and based on the public interest. So, so it, it, it's got to be that way. And if we don't have that, we're going to have an ongoing set of issues. So I think that's the first step. Uh, and then the second step, of course, is to make sure that that information, that evidence is not just available to key decision makers, but but available in a wide uh, the, to the wider public. Now, we've got a lot of things to uh, detractors or distractors, I should say, distractors in terms of our attention. But, you know, there are ways that we can engage people around climate change, around water, around food or, or energy, um, you know, public processes that allow people to engage with the material work through it and, and not this is not propaganda just work through whatever the the evidence is and 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 think it through and those are I know you call them you know deliberative processes or dialogues that's the sort of thing we need in Australia and it, uh, it allows people to be part of it they may not be the direct decision makers but they are they're part of a process to understand what's going on now I know it exists in our parliaments but but I'm talking about taking it out of the parliament process and, and including it in Parliament of course but but taking it out uh, and engaging with, with people on 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 you know whatever you want to call them you know the dialogues on, on the on the key risks and issues facing Australia and of course I'm only focusing on food energy and water there are other things other dialogues that are required of course uh, in terms of um, you know uh, co constitution recognition in relation to the Uluru statement uh, from the heart I mean there's there's a whole series of issues around that but I think that would be a, a, a good step forward uh, so that would be my um, sort of an indirect way of answering your your, your question mm. it's it's a really interesting map that you're giving us I think that the pieces of the puzzle that might come together uh, to help frame a much more robust policy approach to these difficult problems and I couldn't agree with you more about the the real advantages of that community um, engagement process whether it a deliberative democracy framework or otherwise but as a really key part for climate adaptation engaging people on the ground in the places that they live it's it's really key. Um, I thought we might just shift to the international perspective now. Um, earlier this month, the White House released an action plan on global water security, citing data from the United Nations Environment Program, its international resource panel. Its estimate is that almost half of the world's population will suffer severe water stress by 2030. We know that in our Pacific region, in our Pacific neighbours, are on the front line of climate change with various impacts that are already pressuring food and water security. When we look globally, or, or when we look particularly, I suppose, in our region, what sorts of plans and innovation can we see when it comes to ensuring water security? Where, where are the other glimmers of hope on that, that global scale? You know, we talked about energy and uh, decentralized or distributed energy systems, and I, I think that's got to be part. It's not the only way of proceeding. So particularly in Pacific Islands, uh, the ability to have access to, to 
clean drinking water, fresh water, particularly following uh, cyclonic events, uh, is is critically important. So you know, making sure there are systems you know that, that use renewable energy uh, and can draw uh, moisture out of the atmosphere. They're not cheap, but they are certainly good backup systems. So those sorts of those sorts of systems need to be in place with our you know, Pacific um, uh, neighbours, uh, for example, they can also be applied in remote areas of Australia, um, you know, uh, as well as other approaches such as, of course, you know, using groundwater and reverse osmosis. So there's a technology approach to this, but but the, there's also something else <laughs> you highlighted in terms of climate change adaptation. So so one of the, the key issues going forward, particularly for, you know, um, Pacific Island uh, countries, um, is that uh, it's saltwater intrusion? So saltwater intrusion happens, of course, with um, you know with cyclonic events, but also with uh, sea level rise. So, so there's a whole series of issues about groundwater contamination and how to how to deal with that. Um, not only in terms of desalination, but also you know the sorts of things that can be done to to, to at least mitigate some of the, some of those uh, those issues. I'm not an expert on on groundwater, uh, so I won't talk to the to those. But there are there are mitigating. Um, ways uh, to, to, to mitigate that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, another key issue is around the levels of extraction out of the water space as well, you know, the existing aquifers. Um, and so it's about, again, having a strategy, being clear outcomes and making investments, but both in technology. And, and I think one thing I haven't highlighted, although it's certainly implied in my conversation with you in the last few minutes, is this issue of water governance. So technology is part of the solution, but so is governance. And governance is just a fancy term for saying, you know, the, the right people are in place, can understand the problems, and are acting in the way uh, to, to generate good decisions uh, that meet uh, the, the public interest. And so that's got to be that's got to be the front and center. And indeed, at a global scale, and the global scale when it comes to the, the global water crises, it really is all about water governance. It's getting the right mix, getting the right decision, the, uh, the right evidence, and, and then actually acting on it. Uh, without that, um, we're just not going to be able to respond to these, uh, these, 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 these problems. And it goes, goes back to what I was saying earlier. You, know, you get the right people in place, thinking ahead, making the right investments. You can really turn things around in a few years, get the wrong people in place, not making the investments, pulling us in the wrong direction, not even understanding what the problem is. Um, you know, we just uh, end up going in the absolute opposite direction. So the governance is critically important. And it's not just about training. It's 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 about getting the right mix uh, in there in the context of governance, not only at a catchment level, but also th you know thinking through the sorts of issues around integrity, truth telling, all of those sorts of things, and getting getting communities involved. You know, getting uh, getting people who are affected by decisions uh, part of the decision making process. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not only distributed energy, distributed water, but it's uh, uh, but it's also distributed decision making in that sense. And yes, it can make it more complicated, but uh, you know, given where we've gone in the last uh, so many years at a global scale, we haven't delivered. We haven't. We're not going to deliver on the uh, sustainable development goals by 2030, and that goal for water is is water for all. Um, uh, it ain't going to be delivered, okay? So we have to do something different. And so looking to doing something different is is really in that governance space, the decision-making space. It's, it's, it's the key. It's the key to our future for 
responding to water crisis, but it's true to the climate change crisis as well. You know, yes, they're technology solutions, and yes, they're incredibly important, but technology alone is not going to fix it for us. We have to have the right governance systems in place and the right decision makers and all that what I've just been saying. So it's, it's, it, that's the, that's the future. It, it, it's, 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 it's kind of nebulous. It's kind of vague. What do you mean? But, but there are people who've thought this through. There are examples we can point to. Uh, this is not mission impossible. It does require concerted effort, but it's the governance is, is a key, key factor going forward. Uh, both water, food, energy, whatever you want to name it. We get that right. Then, then everything will, will, well, not be perfect, but at least we'll be going in, in the direction that we need to be going. So they're fairly core things, aren't they? Water, energy, and food. Uh, and, and I think part of what, what you're framing so beautifully is the interconnected, interrelated elements of these problems, that solving one problem in isolation can often make other problems worse. And I think we're seeing some of that, again, we saw that some of that with our coronavirus experience. We saw that with the, the climate change events, or climate change driven events in 2019, particularly the bushfires. Um, but we're also seeing that now with the war in Ukraine. These global events are impacting food production and supply. And we know that around one third of the world's wheat and barley is produced in the Ukraine and Russia, with about half of the sunflower oil coming from that region. There are cascading effects from the conflict uh, that are now contributing to problems with availability of cooking oil for sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa, North Africa and South Asia. Before the war, Ukraine supplied food for nearly 400 million people around the world and it's clear that this food crisis will have devastating effects, particularly in the season ahead. Can you tell us about the relationship between the food crisis and water and energy? Yeah, so... There's a key relationship between energy prices and food prices. This has been known for, for quite some time, and that's exactly what's happening right now. So we're having high energy prices in, in a function in part, not exclusively, but because of the uh, the invasion of, of Ukraine. Now, high energy prices therefore mean high fertilizer prices, which also then feeds into the costs of production, which then means higher food prices. And those higher food prices, of course, then means uh, uh, increased hunger or, or, or decreased uh, uh, nutrition uh, and or both uh, for certainly, certainly for, for, for lower income households uh, uh, across, across the world. And it's, it's not just in poor countries. It can also be in rich countries as well. So that's the, that's the, the energy price, the energy food connection. Furthermore, uh, there has been uh, subsidies in the past uh, for, for, for biofuels and that, that is, uh, affects also the, uh, the supply of food. Uh, so if you're building, uh, if you're producing something, corn for, for ethanol, for example, then, then that's not corn for, for feed or it's not corn for people. So that has implications since we have fixed amounts of land. And then you've got the the other dimension of water. So in a number of countries in the world um, that are very fortunate in terms of their regular water precipitation and, and seasonal uh, seasonal delivery, it's places like France, for example, um, you know the irrigation isn't isn't uh, isn't that that important. Um, you know, Ukraine would be would, would would be part of that, or irrigation is important there too. But but the point about it is, in some countries in the world, irrigation is fundamental to food production. You know, so that's India, um, northern India. Uh, that's uh, good parts of China. 
without irrigation, they just wouldn't possibly be able to 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 feed the the population that they do. So so if you don't get the water right, you can't get the food. And the challenge that uh, a number of countries are facing, not all countries in the world, but a number of key food producing countries, is that uh, their water demand is increasing very rapidly for uh, industry, uh, for growing urban communities. Uh, as people get richer, uh, they tend to use more water. So what that means is there's only so much water to go around. And so they can't they can't do it all. They can't have that and maintain or grow, in particular, their food production. So, so in some countries in the world, there's there's this food water crisis that is, as I say, emerging. It has already emerged. Uh, a couple that with an energy crisis in the sense of energy prices affecting uh, food prices. You put those three together and you can get the perfect storm. We've seen it before. We, we saw it in, you know, at the time of the global financial crisis before that, 2007, 2008. There's a huge attention given to that about the food energy water crisis and the connections that things got better, energy prices fell and and we got over that. Uh, uh, a lot of people suffered uh, along the way. Uh, we're in the same situation in 2022, you know, and I, I would I, I would argue, you know, whether it's a Ukraine, Russia situation that is, you know, triggering some of this as well as the pandemic, that, that there will be more frequent uh, crises like this. And so we need to prepare for them and we need to do the sorts of things I was saying earlier. And, uh, and if we don't, we will get these cascading crises. And of course, the poor and vulnerable are the ones who suffer the most, of course. But, but you know, people shouldn't, um, shouldn't be um, shouldn't be comfortable in their in their warm seats wherever they might be in Australia because you know it's affecting the it's affecting the it's you know it's affecting the stock markets right now I mean so how how do, how do I draw the analogy the, the connection there well you know we have inflation inflation has come back uh, you know full steam ahead you know in the last twelve months that means higher interest rates the higher interest rates affects the Price house prices affects uh, uh, fixed assets, uh, equities, for example. So it affects uh, people's wealth. Um, we may not want to be concerned about those people, I suppose, but we all. Uh, it, the point about it is, it affects everybody. Um, you know, whether it's uh, the poor not having enough food, or whether it's people who are wealthy who are finding that their um, the value of their investments has declined uh, quite quite a lot in the last couple of days. So, so I mean, the point about it is it connects everywhere. These risks are being borne by people in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places, and in different ways. And so we need to, to be you know, cognizant of it and think it through <laughs> and you know, be sensible, have a strategy, care about outcomes and plan for it and, uh, and, and don't adopt um, strategy uh, tactics, I, I, I should say, in, like, for example, uh, food export restrictions will, will tend to make this situation worse. It uh, just makes it even more problematic, uh, particularly for food importing countries as prices rise and export restrictions are put in place. Those are the sorts of things that we need to work through and do in a global global a global way. We need to think through in terms of energy. We, we thought this back in the energy crisis of the of the early 1970s, which seems an age an age away, uh, where there was a uh, uh, a reserve uh, created through the International Energy Agency, you know, to as a 60-day, 90-day uh, supplies of oil uh, to allow to deal with those sort of emergencies. Those are the sorts of planning at a multi multinational basis that we need to have. 
both in food uh, and in the water space, the energy space, all of those sorts of things, and done in a way where we uh, collectively, uh, you know, agree and actually implement the, the sorts of um, protocols uh, to, for, to, to ensure that we have good um, or better global outcomes. And without it, we, we will... Um, we will degenerate into, you know, uh, you know, various, whatever you want to call them, conflicts of some sort or other uh, across countries, uh, as as we have seen, and and that uh, in 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 the in the COVID space, uh, as as in some countries, uh, uh, have fared much worse than others because they haven't been able to get the support that they need, and they need to 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 ensure that that doesn't doesn't happen in the food, energy, water space. Quentin. There's there's so much in those comments that you've just made, and there's been so much in this conversation that we we could continue to talk about for quite a long time. Um, we'll we'll need to to start to wrap the conversation up, and I wanted to stay with some of the themes that you've just been teasing out around both inequality and around governance. And you made the point. Um, which I think we're we're all very much aware of that everyone is feeling the risks and the pain um, of these insecurities at the moment, regardless of our economic status. But of course, it's often those who are living in poverty who are most deeply affected most quickly. Um, and I, I think about the work that that we've done around uh, multidimensional poverty and within the measure that we developed of the 14 dimensions, three of those are food, water and energy. And in the the studies that we've done, we, we see just what deep deprivation many people experience around those three things, you know, particularly in the global south. And of course, in the context of COVID, we're seeing that long-term downward trend in extreme poverty starting to reverse. So we know that poverty and inequality are becoming deeper issues globally. I I wanted to kind of pull some of those threads together and to ask you to talk a little bit more about governance. And you've you've talked really powerfully about the importance of governance uh, within Australia. When we think about food security, we're always thinking about issues, oh, sorry, I should say when we think about water security, we're always thinking of issues that go beyond national borders. But you've also just mapped the way in which that links to both food and energy crises, which are also global. I'm wondering if you could could share your thoughts with us about how we need to think about global governance, particularly of water, but perhaps also around food and energy, and how we can start to think about global governance in a way that addresses inequality and moves us towards that powerful idea of water, but also food and energy for all. Yeah, look, I, I'm really glad that you highlighted this issue about the uh, vulnerable people, because it is the vulnerable people, the people who don't have um, uh, reserves, uh, they don't have the savings, they're the ones they get hit almost immediately as prices rise. They they don't have the options that that wealthier, higher income people have. So there has to be systems in place, and obviously, it will depend for countries. Where you know, some countries can do this better than others, but but they have to be what you know you'd want to call it social services or service provision associated with food, 
energy and water uh, as a minimum standards uh, for and those standards i say well i have to vary I, 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 by country but but they are minimums uh, you know to ensure that people can survive um, and ultimately if they survive then ultimately can thrive and so that's got to be part of the mix it can't just simply be oh well um, you know we've got the strategy you have to manage as best as you can you need to have alternatives as well as part of your strategy to make sure the poor and vulnerable are taken care of in these crises, and we're going to have more of them. Okay, they, 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 this is not the this is not the last uh, food, energy, water crises that we're going to be seeing in the energy crisis at the moment. It's, there'll be more to come uh, at a global scale. So we've got to we've got to we've got to do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is as you said, you know this this global governance. Uh, uh, model. Well, we 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 don't have global governance. We we've tried to do it, but we we've made some steps, but we certainly don't have it. But there are things that have been done in a concrete way. I mentioned in terms of the IEA, International Energy Agency, in terms of oil reserves uh, at a national level, and uh, using those reserves for for the for the for the global good. Uh, we can do the same in uh, food. There are food reserves in a variety of countries. Uh, there are ways that that has been done and could be done. And and expanded, and in the water space, well, it's the same thing in the sense that uh, uh, you know one country's water is not just its its own water. It, uh, what what happens to that water, how that water you is used, particularly for food surplus countries, and it has imp- gross implications for the world uh, as a whole. I mean, if you take China and India, if they if they are unable to irrigate, I mean, that's not. I'm not suggesting that would ever happen, but if they're unable to irrigate, you know, we we don't have enough food to feed the world. You know, that's that's as basic as those two countries. So, so we have to make sure that what's going on in those countries in particular. I mean, obviously, it's their it's their sovereignty, but it, it it needs to be thought through the implications of what's going on in India, for example, and its its food, energy, water space has global implications, and it's not just. You know, the, uh, an issue in India, it's it's a global global scale, and so you know if there's assistance or whatever required or strategies, assistance, whatever term you want to use, then they we need we globally as a global community be part of that picture, as as much as it is for a small country which uh, doesn't produce food surpluses that they also looked after, you know whether and that and that's part of what we have as a global goal as the sustainable development goals we signed up to. The whole world signed up to to deliver by 2030, um, and uh, to end hunger was one of those key goals. And uh, it's not going to happen. I had to say it's not going to happen by 2030. But we need to do a much better job to make sure it does happen. Uh, we're on that pathway or pathways to to that. So yeah, it's 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 national, it's regional, but it's certainly global. And we need to do much more of that talking. You know, we've got the. But climate change, uh, we have the regular conference of the parties, these these regular meetings. We need to be having that not only in the climate change, we need it in the food space and in the water space. You know, we need to be thinking about what are the investments, where do they need to be put and how much and, and on what sort. And and those are the sorts of things we need to be having at a global global scale. We should be having those global conferences. There's, in fact, the UN Conference on Water uh, being held in March 2023 in New York City, that uh, is a great, uh, great start to, to, to the sorts of things I'm talking about. But I think the previous conference at a UN level was 1977. There are other water conferences, of course, at, uh, but not 
what I'm talking about. So that's the sort of thing we need to be doing. You know, we need to have that documentation, the truth telling, the the strategies, the uh, the the money on the table to particularly help the vulnerable and and, and marginalized. That's got to be in that space. And 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 the other thing is, um, you know, I've highlighted and you've highlighted it throughout this conversation: food, energy, and water. It can't just be in silos. It can't just be the well. We got the water conference, and then we got the food conference, and then we got the climate change conference, and we got the well. <laughs> you know, we we need to we need to put them together in terms of the how they connect and, and cascade in terms of risks. So so that's got to be part of it. And it sounds like a talking shop, um, and and maybe it is as in part it is. But but the talking and the truth telling and the strategizing, the prioritization is critical. To, to dealing with these uh, these global problems. And uh, uh, the first step is to talk. The second step is to walk. Okay, so um, that's that's got to be how we do it. I think that's right, Quentin. As long as we, as long as we connect the talking to the acting, yeah. um, we're, we're heading in the right direction. And I think that point you made about the interconnectedness of these issues is just so incredibly important. Uh, this has been an incredible conversation and it's one that sadly we're going to have to wrap up, but we always like to finish the pod by asking our guests for their, their one main piece of advice. And I wonder if in asking you that we could turn to Australia and finish by, by asking you what your, your number one piece of advice is for policymakers in Australia to ensure water, food and energy security. Connect the dots. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's as simple as that. Connect the dots. Just see beyond the silos, connect the dots, and then you'll start to, we collectively, you, um, all of us, uh, be able to, to work out what we need to do. So connect the dots to the information, connect the dots across communities, connect the dots across the multiple interests and views. That's the only way we're going to be able to, to, to make headway in, in Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's as simple as and, and as hard as that. Quentin, on that excellent piece of advice, which could apply to so many policy issues, we'll draw this conversation to a close. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been inspirational and enlightening. Quentin Grafton, thank you. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thank you, Anna Greta. Anna Greta, what a fantastic conversation that was. I, I always enjoy listening to Quentin and, and having conversations with him. Mm, absolutely. I, I was struck when he gave that last piece of advice, which was join the dots. And I think right throughout our conversation, you know, it was about interconnectedness, how we do pull those threads together. And when reflecting on the comments that Quentin was making, I was thinking about those points that, that Yasmin made last week and that you've been talking about, intersectionality, which essentially is the same thing. How do we join the dots to better understand, in the case of intersectionality, the way that discrimination and inequality plays out? Here, how do we join the dots to make sense of really complex issues? And I think that's such a powerful thing for us to be thinking about as we face both in Australia and globally such deep policy challenges. How do we stop thinking and behaving in silos and pull those themes together? And Anna Greta, I wouldn't be surprised if you're thinking about Occam's Quilt. 
I am thinking about Occam's Quilt. And, and for those who don't remember, we spoke to Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamb earlier in the year um, and talked particularly about their remarkable book, uh, Six Faces of Globalisation. And for even for people who are not necessarily interested in globalisation, the, the really remarkable part of that book, which I have to say I found an extraordinary read, is the last chapter where they make a compelling case for what they describe as integrative thinking, uh, of really trying to break down some of these disciplinary silos. And I think that's what we've again heard from Quentin, an expert across a wide range of fields um, and also comfortable in speaking in areas where the deep expertise is is less apparent. Um, and I think that's part of the, the confidence that we need to build when we're looking at complex problems and we're trying to work across more than one issue at the same time is how, to, how we foster and grow these conversations uh, in a way that breaks down the silo wall. Uh, because we know that we can't solve, and you can see the air quotes, but solving climate change, solving food security, solving water security, to do those things in isolation without an integrative approach, without an intersectional approach, uh, we can do much more harm than good. And so it's been a tremendously rich discussion, and I will come back and listen to this episode again. Yeah, I, I, I will too, Anna Greta. I think, you know, from this we take away, let's talk about the challenges. Let's talk in a way that tells truth and is honest. Let's join the dots and then let's act towards solutions. So let's finish by reminding you that Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to any of the publications that we've mentioned today in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you like this episode, you can leave a review and that helps other people to find out their way to the podcast as well. You can also reach out to us. We love hear from, hearing from you. We love hearing your feedback and your ideas. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us on podcast at policyforum.net or you can find us through Facebook on our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. For me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.